Holy Father, I thank You for Your Word. And I thank You for Its potency in our lives. And Father, we, we are in awe of You because of the way You have given us not only Your Word, but Your Spirit to understand. That as we study and think these things through, we truly get a Holy Spirit download of the truth. And You affect us, Lord, through every fiber of our being. And Father, it is my prayer that that would be my life. And it's my prayer for our fellowship that we would seek to be a people for whom every fiber of our being is Spirit-led and Spirit-filled and soaked and drenched, baptized, covered, washed, sanctified in the Spirit of the living God. And Father, as we live in a world that so chases after the flesh, I ask that You empower us to walk in a completely different way. Father, we reject the notion of playing a part or wearing a mask or acting a role. We want to be genuine followers of Jesus, authentic Christians, through and through in our thinking, in our behavior, as in our spirits. But we also recognize because of this sin nature, we need Your power to be sanctified. We need Your cleansing blood, Jesus, to be pure. We need, truly, Father, Your strength to to make us what You've called us to be. And so, Lord, tonight as we study these things some more, I pray that we would continue the abdication of our will in favor of Your will. That we might embrace and entrust ourselves to the One who judges righteously and fairly, justly and graciously. And that we might find truly, Lord, the joy of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Most precious Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us tonight and speak Your Word of truth to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well this was one of the nights I warned you about. You chose to be here, so I either congratulate you or uh, maybe you forgot. Tonight we're going to talk... Well, I'm entitling this. We'll go through about halfway through chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Part of chapter 6. We'll come back to chapter 6 on Sunday. Tonight, if I was going to give it a title, it would be Casual Sex and Judicial Compassion. So brace yourselves. It's not my word. This is God's word. And we must deal with it. And the church today is not dealing with it well. I can give you all kinds of statistics, but I think you know that. I think you know that when it comes to sexuality and sexual behavior, that the church is not doing well. I'm not talking about the bridge. I'm just talking about the church overall. And I don't mean that to be a statement of judgment, except that we are called to judge the household of God. We'll get there. But Jesus said, Matthew 19, verse 4, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now that's Jesus' final word on marriage. And we've been over this and we've talked about it. We've looked at it. 
That's the prescription. He doesn't say anything about if it's easy or difficult. He doesn't say anything about if, if there are struggles or sickness or hardship. He just says what God has joined together, keep it together. In the late 60s, early 70s, a phrase caught on with ominous implications, though people didn't really see it that way, and the phrase was casual sex. There's no such thing. It's a misnomer. It's since been replaced by other expressions. The 90s gave us hooking up. The 2000s gave us friends with benefits. More recently, it's been replaced by, check this out, especially you parents, just in case you overhear this phrase, Netflix and chill. Netflix and chill. That came out 2014, 2015, uh, especially among uh, millennials and the next generation coming, which are called iGens or Generation Z. People still aren't sure what they're going to be about. The first generation, by the way, raised completely in the handheld technology age, the computer age. They know nothing else. They don't know of a day of an age where there weren't computers, where there weren't handheld devices, where there wasn't the technology that that we have and we use today. This is normal life for them. Cheryl and I got new iPhones this last week. It took me most of a day just to get it figured out and loaded up and working. And then the next day it wasn't working again. I'm just, "Ah!" my kids can look and go, oh, just go, there you go, Dad. It's what they know. They're also raised in a world that knows a lot of other things. Netflix and chill. I mentioned that phrase. It used to mean, back in the old days of 2007, Netflix and chill... Hey, come on over and we'll watch Netflix and we'll chill together. Just a relaxing evening of binge-watching your favorite program, whatever that might be. But they've been using it now, this younger generation especially, to refer to casual sex, at least for the last two years. Let's, Let's have a little Netflix and chill. Let me be clear about this. God is not casual about sex. And Jesus said there is only one place where sex is holy, healthy, and acceptable in a biblical marriage. Biblical marriage. I have to say that now. Because in our culture, I can't just say marriage because our Supreme Court has now given it other implications. So I have to say biblical marriage. What's biblical marriage, Rick? One man and one woman for one life. That's the most biblical definition I can give you of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in an age which actually was very similar to ours in terms of the casual nature of sexual immorality. And he wrote, Ephesians 5, 3, sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, don't even use the phrase. Don't even, it shouldn't even be talked about or considered or swept under the carpet. In Ephesians 5.11, continuing on in that same chapter, Paul said, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. 
He says, it is disgraceful even to speak of these things which are being done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Now, in this letter to the church at Corinth, Paul does speak of the unspeakable. But he does it to expose these things to the light. I am so thankful for that. Because no man, no woman among us need wonder what God really thinks about things like casual sex or Netflix and chill. About hooking up in our culture. About how it's not really that big a deal. You know what I, I think we've done, and I, I'm, just, I'm still processing all of these things, but I think what we've done is we've, we've come out with a statement that all sin is sin. And it is, truly. There's no sin that's acceptable to God. No sin that's not damnable. All sin is sin. However, we say that, and therefore we take certain sins and we say, therefore, uh, casual sex is really no different than a white lie. So what's the big deal? And that's our mistake. Paul will actually make a difference, and we'll get to this on Sunday, between sexual behavior and all other sin. He will say it is different. And again, we'll explain why. But the church at Corinth was so influenced by the Greco-Roman culture of the day, it desperately needed a change of heart, a spiritual paradigm shift. And so does the church in America. Now, before the night is through, I'll be giving you a list of specific biblical terms and definitions related to sexual behavior. Paul doesn't miss a single one. But the first one we need to understand, and it underscores all the others, is the word immorality. In the New Testament, every single time you see the word immorality, it is sexual immorality. It's the word pornea, where we get pornography. It's any sexual behavior outside that of a biblically defined marriage. And again, without exception. So the word immorality isn't just some kind of vague uh, sinfulness. We have other words for that. Sin, transgression. Immorality in the scriptures is sexual in nature. In every single context. And you can just go through your New Testament and, and, and do a word search of immorality and see every single time the context is sexual. And that's what the word means. Pornea. Now that includes, because we have to be clear, it includes premarital sex, sometimes called fornication. It includes extramarital sex, which is adultery. It includes homosexuality. It includes bestiality. I mean, it is the whole realm of any kind of sexual behavior that is practiced by a man or a woman outside of marriage. Sexual immorality, pornea. Originally, pornea meant male prostitution. In the Greek language, back when it was first spoken, but by the first century, it was commonly used in Greek and Roman culture, and especially among the Jews, to specifically mean any illicit sexual activity. Pornea. We'll see that word several times, so just be aware of that as we go forward. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says it is actually reported that there is immorality, pornea, among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. That is, someone at the church in Corinth is having an illicit sexual affair with his stepmom. 
Verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this to you would be removed from your midst. What the culture calls casual, get this, the Bible calls arrogance. Because it's nothing less than prideful indifference to sweep sexual immorality under the rug as casually as some do with a wink and a shrug. And I have seen over and over and over how these things are ignored. I've ignored it. To my shame. In previous churches, in previous ministries, in youth ministry, I knew which kids were doing it in my groups. And I would talk to them about it and encourage them not to, but that's as far as it went. And it is, I believe, it is sinful for me to disregard the behavior that is going on that I become aware of. Oh, Rick, you're bordering on judgmental. I haven't even gotten started. (laughs) In verse 6, Paul calls this casual indifference boasting. Why? I'll explain in a few minutes. Verse 3, Paul says, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now he's not talking about astral projection when he says I'm with you in spirit. He's just saying my heart is with you. Hey, my heart was here the last two weeks. You just need to know that. I had a great vacation. I enjoyed being off with my family, but I could not wait to be back here because my heart's here. My spirit is with our fellowship. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, Corinth, I love you. I'm there with you. I am behind you and I am with you. And you need to understand when you assemble, my heart wants to assemble with you. And when you assemble and you have this going on in your fellowship, not okay. And the fact that you're allowing it is boastful arrogance on your part. He's not even talking to the immoral man. He's talking to the church. This is serious business as far as the apostle is concerned. And I remind you, he is speaking by the Spirit of the living God. So he brings to light, and this is shocking in the Scriptures. This is not the kind of thing you expect to find when you open up the Bible. But Paul calls out this incestuous affair that's not even acceptable in the pagan world. Cicero wrote that this kind of behavior was criminal as far as Rome was concerned and went on to say it was extremely rare. And among the Jewish people, incest was cursed. Leviticus 18, verse 8, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Deuteronomy 27.20 Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt. And all the people shall say, Amen. But it's happened in culture, and Paul says it's happening not only at Corinth, but in the church at Corinth. Now at this point in our study tonight, there may be some of you going, Good. I've never been in that kind of relationship. So I just skirted by. Hold on. So Paul says this man, this this guy who's with his father's wife, is playing with fire. And he judges him as unfit to even be in the fellowship. 
He should be gone. He should not be sitting there. I was going to say in the second row, but that's where Lana's sitting and I don't want to imply anything. (laughs) He shouldn't be sitting there among you, worshiping God as if everything's okay. Listen, when we do that, God knows. He knows what's going on in our lives. We may fool each other, but we're not fooling Him. And so... Paul says this guy needs to be let go from the fellowship. And we need to know this is more than apostolic judgment. This is not Paul sitting at the denominational headquarters on high or at the Vatican handing down, you know, missives on what's supposed to take place. There are at least three obvious motives behind Paul calling this out, even in what would become Holy Scripture. Three motives. Number one, Paul had a passionate love of Jesus Christ. A passionate love of Jesus. And we need to understand that Christian morality begins and ends with Him, not with us. How much do I love Jesus? You see, my love for Jesus should be borne out in my moral choices and decisions. The more I love Jesus, the more I disdain anything that would hurt Him. Anything that would cause the nails to go even a millimeter deeper. The more I love Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul had a passionate love for Jesus. He loved Jesus so much, he could not let things like this go on in the body of Christ himself. How much do you love Jesus? You know, when you're struggling, when I'm struggling with sin, with issues of morality, with values as a follower... That needs to be the very first question. How much do I love Jesus? Is my behavior reflecting the love that I have for Him? If if it's just about my personal morality, I can let things slide. Because I'm not all that moral all the time anyway. So if it's just about me, no big deal. If it's about Jesus, wow, that's a different thing. No moral compass will remain true when it's set by myself or by a pastor's pleading, or by a denominational doctrine. It is always the love of Christ and our love for Christ that is the defining factor in our moral choices and even in our judgment as believers. So, Paul loves Jesus too much to turn a blind eye to this situation. Second motive for calling this out, a compassionate love for the immoral man. See, Paul not only loves Jesus, he loves this man. He loves this brother too much to allow this to go unchecked. To to allow it just to continue on. Note that in verse 5, the reason Paul says this guy needs to be put out of the fellowship is so his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He is more concerned about this man's salvation than this man's current uh, pleasure more concerned that this man might somehow be saved, but he's not going to get this. He is not going to be saved if the church just ignores what's going on. If he's just allowed to live out this immoral behavior, why should he change? And I do think we need to consider ourselves a little bit more culpable 
when we know that a brother or sister is caught up in sin, or in this case sexual immorality, and we say nothing. We think, well, I just don't want to offend them. So in not offending them, what I'm doing is helping pave the way for their trip to hell. Wait a minute, Rick, are you saying that someone can lose their salvation? That is not the discussion here tonight. That's another discussion for another night. I'm trying to get across, and I think what Paul's trying to get across, is how serious this really is. To let sin just go unchecked. He has a compassionate love for the immoral man that he might repent. You know the word repent is used ten times in the book of Revelation. Turn over there just for a second. Understanding that the idea of repentance is turning from our current behavior. Not wallowing in it, not ignoring it, not allowing it just to continue, but turning from the sin and to God. That's repentance. And we see it ten times in the final book of Scripture. Revelation chapter 2 verse 5. Which says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Removal of the lampstand? I'm going to take my spirit from you. Now, I do not believe the Lord removes His spirit from the believer, but I do believe the Lord removes His spirit from a fellowship. That the work and the power and the moving of the Holy Spirit in a fellowship of believers can be removed as a lampstand pulled out of the holy place if there's no repentance. Repent or lose His presence. And then in verse 16 of chapter 2, where Jesus says, Therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the word of my mouth. Repent or you will be at war with the word of God. Turn from sin and to the Lord or you're at war with God's holy written word. Thirdly, look down in verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her immorality. That is this woman he calls Jezebel. Behold, he says, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Down in verse 3 of chapter 3, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know it at what hour I will come to you. So what's he saying here? Repent or you're going to go into tribulation and you will miss the rapture. Now let me speak to the issue of can you lose your salvation. I don't believe that you can. However, I do believe you can miss the rapture. And I believe there will be some Christians, followers of Jesus, believers who have chosen to live immoral lives and who will not go home when the church is called. Because there will not be a stain on the bridal gown. And there are some who probably will head right on into tribulation and realize it, having missed the rapture of the church. Chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Discipline simply reveals the compassionate love of God. Paul calling for the disfellowship of this man reveals not Paul's bigoted judgment. 
It reveals His compassionate love for this individual that something finally be done to stop the behavior. To help him realize how serious it truly is, far better to be judged now by a fellow believer and be brought to repentance than to be judged later. Now, the very last use of the word repentance in Scripture is tragic. It's Revelation 16, verse 11, which simply reads, They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. There is in this world a point of no repentance, no return. And so Paul is calling for repentance in this man's life. Wouldn't it be better, truly, for someone sinning in a fellowship blatantly and openly to be removed from that fellowship and to feel the loss and to feel the sorrow and ultimately to come to repentance and be saved and restored rather than just to let things go Again, unchecked. And if you need further evidence for Paul's motives, all you have to do is flip over to the next letter that he's going to send to Corinth, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6, where he writes, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. And I believe, and many do, that he's talking about the same guy. That in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, kick him out. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, bring him back. Because the point was never just to shun him and get him out of our sight. The point of disfellowship is never to drive somebody off. The point of disfellowship, when it happens, and I hope it's rare, but when it happens, the point of it is to make someone realize it's like a last-ditch effort to wake somebody up to their sin so that they can be restored to the fellowship, but more importantly, to the Lord. So Paul has a passion for Jesus so that he cannot let this go. He has a compassion for this man so that he cannot let this go. And thirdly and finally, he has a passionate love for Christ's church. Verse 6. Your boasting, he says, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Paul's Jewishness starts to flow into this Gentile letter. Remember, he's not writing to Jews here. He's primarily writing to Gentiles. There were some Jewish Christians there in the church at Corinth, but primarily Gentiles, and yet Paul can't help himself. And he he draws back to, to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to Passover, to very Jewish concepts, leaven in the dough, leaven in the lump, and how it spreads through the whole thing. And it reminds me, folks, that the Hebrew Scriptures are not irrelevant to Gentiles. That the Hebrew Scriptures are as much the Scriptures as the New Testament, and we embrace the entire Word of God. Now, it's possible that Paul's Gentile audience is going to have to do their Hebrew homework. But you all already know this. What is leaven a symbol of in the Bible? Sin. Unquestionably, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and throughout the New Testament, it is always symbolic of sin. Clean out the leaven. If this man is sitting in your fellowship committing this immorality and you're all aware of it, everybody knows... 
he needs to be removed because this immoral behavior, this sexually immoral behavior is spreading like leaven, is infecting the fellowship. How is that even possible? Well, if that guy's doing that, this affair over here is really not so big a deal. If that guy's sleeping with his father's wife, these teenagers sleeping with each other in our youth group, not a big deal. We're not going to discipline him, so we can't really say anything. The leaven begins to spread. You all know how leaven works, and, and, and it's the reason why we have spring cleaning today. The Jewish people invented spring cleaning. Truly, that's where it came from. The idea that every spring prior to Passover, they would clean house and make sure not a spot of leaven was in the house. Clear out the leaven. They had to have it clean before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began immediately following Passover that entire week. And we understand that leaven spreads through the entire dough, causing it to rise. And what Paul says here, and it's a great example, because sin and tolerance of sin also spreads through the entire body of believers, causing it to rise. Rise how? In boastful arrogance. Which is why Paul says in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Boastful arrogance. How are they boastful if they're not addressing this sin? (laughs) Paul says, Corinth, you're puffed up. You're prideful. Let me put some words to it that I think will help you understand. We're so tolerant. Our fellowship is so loving. Anybody can join us. We're so open-minded, it doesn't matter if the relationship is biblical or not. We're tolerant, we're open-mindful, we're loving, really, more so than God? We're tolerant of things God is not tolerant of. We're loving things God hates, not people, but certainly behaviors. We're accepting things God calls unacceptable And it's only the height of human arrogance that would call God small-minded in these things. For us, for any church to say, it's no big deal what goes on sexually between people in their own private lives, is to boast before the Lord as if we know better than God. It's boastful arrogance. And with that arrogance, the leaven of sin just continues to spread. And someone's going to die. Remember Achan? You Bible students remember back in Joshua chapter 6, Israel conquered Jericho. It was a glorious defeat. They didn't even raise a single sword. They didn't have to. They just blew trumpets. Marched around the city. And God said, once you've conquered this city, you are not to take a single piece of spoil from the war. You leave it. It is under a ban. But in Joshua chapter 7, Achan, I like to call him Billy Ray, my ache and breaking heart. But... Okay. Anyway, he stole a pricey Babylonian hoodie, a robe. And by 2016 standards, he stole the equivalent of $16,000 in silver and $21,000 in gold. Not a big deal. He took it, you know the story, he buried it under his tent, no doubt thinking what they don't know won't hurt them. Really? 36 soldiers of Israel were killed in the next campaign because God's Spirit wasn't with them because there was sin hidden in the camp. Achan was stoned to death for this as well as his entire family. Oh, that's not fair! 
Well, we don't know all the circumstances, do we? Perhaps his entire family knew what was under the tent. I would think it would be difficult for him to bury it under his tent without his wife and kids knowing something about it. But the bottom line is, somebody eventually dies in Israel's case, in the case of Achan's hidden sin in the midst of Israel, 36 soldiers, Achan, and his whole family. But get this, understand this, Paul calls out in the midst of this leaven, Christ our Passover. Which is a remarkable affirmation that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, but it's more. It also speaks of the fact that the Passover came first and then the unleavened bread. What do you mean? I mean sacrifice before sinlessness. Sacrifice before sanctification. In other words, we can only clean out the leaven in our lives after the cleansing work of the blood of Christ has accomplished everything. Until Jesus died on the cross, we were not capable of clearing all the leaven out of this house. Now we are. Now we can. Now we are called to. Verse 8. Therefore, Paul says, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The leaven of malice. What is that about? Now, it's just my opinion. But I believe the leaven of malice would be kicking someone out of a fellowship for spite. Biblically removing someone because you're tired of them, you hate them, you don't want them there anymore. That kind of disfellowship I would call the leaven of malice. And it will infect the body just as much as the leaven of wickedness that was accomplished by this immoral man. Paul is pointing out what you do, do for the sake of love. Which means, come 2 Corinthians, there is a time in the future where the offer of restoration must be given. See, that's a loving behavior, and that is not the leaven of malice. It's disfellowship for loving discipline, and Paul rejects both the leaven of malice and of wickedness, and says, if we're going to act in a godly way, compassionately, then if you disfellowship, you must offer refellowship once the person has come to realize what they've done. It should be rare, disfellowship. It should be deeply passionate, even painfully compassionate. Because like Paul, we love Jesus. We love the immoral brother or sister. And we love the church. Now, if you've been confused at all about the Christian's responsibility or position on judgment, when to judge, how to judge, should we judge, judge not, that we not be judged, I mean, what, what is the prescription? In the next few verses, I think the Spirit gives us one of the best explanations of a Christian's attitude of judgment that I see in the entire Bible. It's awesome. So listen to this, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. I mean, you'd have to colonize on Mars to get away from immorality. Paul's not saying, I want you to hole up in your church. No. He says, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother 
if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. And then Paul concludes saying, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And we have the pure example of Jesus in this. Simply put, my responsibility of judgment is I do not have the right to judge people outside of the body of Christ. And yet, as a Christian, that typically is the first place I go for judgment. Can you believe what they're doing? Did you you hear what our president... Did did you read what our Congress... Do you know what they're doing down in Oak Harbor next week? You know what? I can't believe these sinful, immoral, sick people. I am not called to judge the non-believer. I am called to love the non-believer. I'm called to speak truth to the non-believer. To often offer grace to the non-believer. But guess what? I am called to judge brothers and sisters in the household of God. Absolutely clear. Paul says, what I told you, what I meant, and he says, in in my letter, I wrote you, so there was a letter prior to 1 Corinthians, we'll call it O Corinthians, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. There was another letter that he had written, and he said, don't associate with immoral believers, so-called. There are people showing up in your fellowship, and they're living illicitly immoral lives, don't associate with them, have nothing to do with them, they're living a lie. And it's not acceptable. And we have the pure example, again, of Jesus on this. Matthew 9.10 tells us Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through me. And so, yeah, he had no problem taking a meal with a prostitute, with a tax collector, With the sinful dregs of society, they are the ones He came to save. The sick are who the great physician came for. He ate with sinners and tax collectors, but gang, He did not tolerate sin among His disciples. That's not hypocrisy. That's grace. That's mercy. That's family. To love the outsider enough not to judge and to love the body of Christ enough to judge when it's appropriate. Jesus put it this way, Luke 12, 47. The slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So I ask you tonight, have you received the overwhelming grace of the living God? If you've received much, much is required. Not to receive much, mind you, but if you've received much, then much is expected out of you. Have you been entrusted with the riches of the kingdom of God, with salvation, with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? And if so, much is required. Again, not in receiving grace in the kingdom, but in responding to it. And people will expect more of you if you wear the name Christian. In the society. You know that. They do. Guess what? They should. They should. 
it's just not fair that they look at me and they judge me because I'm a Christian. It is fair. They should judge you because you're a Christian. The non-believer should be looking at me as a follower of Jesus and asking, is he really different? Is he really doing what Jesus would have done? Is he acting the way Jesus would have acted? They have every right to judge me, and I have a responsibility to show Jesus to the lost world. And remember this, there's still judgment for Jesus' people. Not just from people, but from Jesus Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. Note this, whether good or bad. Jesus is going to judge the household of God. We are called to do the same. 1 Peter 4.17 It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter is clear. Paul is clear. Judgment must happen in God's house. Well, I don't know if I want to go to that church. You do if the judgment is offered in grace and truth. If it's the judgment of Jesus. I want to be in a church fellowship where my brother Doug sees something wrong in my life, sees some immoral behavior and comes to me and says, Rick, you got to repent. Because this is taking you down, bro. This is not the way you've been called to live. I want to be in that fellowship. I want that accountability. I need that help. Don't you? I mean, anybody here not need help to walk as a follower of Jesus? Let me just see a show of hands. <laughs> so just me. <laughs> Kidding. We need each other. And we let each other down when we don't address the sin that we clearly see that goes on among us. And I'm not even thinking of anything in particular with with this group here tonight. I'm not going, okay, well, Shelly, we can talk about his son. Um, We'll get a whiteboard out and share a few things there. You know, of course, Penelope's in the back and I know what's going on in her life. So let's just, no, but you know. You know each other. With our closer friends within this fellowship, we know what's going on. Are we compassionate enough to go one to another and judge, assess, appraise what's happening that is unspiritual for the sake of a brother or a sister? Paul continues now to explain this whole idea of judgment in God's household and he turns to the courthouse. Chapter 6, verse 1, watch this. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Well, if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as your judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. So there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, (laughs) but a brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. So let me get this straight. Okay, In the church at Corinth, we have division, casual sexual immorality, and lawsuits. This is a great church. 
This is, <laughs> this is the church God saw fit to have one of the letters printed in His Bible so that the deeds of sinfulness might be exposed. And we might read it and understand and see these things and not do the same. Thankfully, Christians no longer sue each other today. It's amazing as we're going through Paul's letters especially, the relevance of these things, as relevant as in the first century. And if this ever comes up in your life, if you ever have the opportunity to sue a brother or sister in Christ, a fellow Christian, listen. The moment I enter the courtroom against a brother or sister, I've lost. I've lost. Before a secular sentence is even reached, I have lost. Because before the world of non-believers, I am suing a brother or sister. Paul says, it ought not be this way. Now there are a couple of things that are of remarkable significance you don't want to miss here. First of all, that the saints will judge the world. Paul says, don't you know that? I mean, as if it was common knowledge, the saints, Christians, are going to judge the world. I'm like, really? How? In Jesus' government, the saints will judge the world. All the way back to the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, verse 22, he wrote, The Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. The saints... In the Septuagint, it literally translates that judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 then carries that on to explain the saints being the church. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. The church will judge the world when? In the Millennial Kingdom. And what Paul's doing is he's drawing a parallel. See, if the saints are going to be competent by the Spirit of God and the righteousness of Jesus to judge the world in the kingdom, why not practice now? Why not right now, rather than taking things to court, take it to brothers and sisters in Christ? Take it to the church. Now, Paul, in all of his writings, maintains this marvelous kingdom age mentality. Gordon Fee put it this way. He said, crucial to the whole argument here is Paul's view of the church as an eschatological community. That is, one whose existence as God's future people absolutely determines its life in the present age. What we will be then determines who we are now. And if we are to judge the world righteously then, we need to learn by judging each other right here and right now. Don't go to the secular court. Go to the church. Go to a brother and a sister. And Jesus lays that out very clearly for us. Start practicing now. Bring your petitions to each other. Rather than to the unspiritual, ungodly, and unspirit-led world. Would you rather have a judge who doesn't know Jesus? Or a brother or sister who does? Which one of the two has the mind of Christ? My brother has the mind of Christ. My sister has the mind of Christ. I would much rather go and pray with somebody about my issue, my problem, even with another brother or sister. And I'm not talking about gossip. Again, Jesus lays this out. I go to the brother first. I'll get there. So the saints will judge the world. And remember what we studied in Romans. We are in preparation for our future roles right now. Practice godly grace and truth judgment in the church. 
out of love for one another. But the saints will also, and this just blows my mind, judge the angels. And probably not because your guardian angel wasn't there when you stubbed your toe that night. Oh, I'm going to judge it for that. No, we are going to judge angels. The question right there comes up, okay, when or, or which ones? I can't even imagine judging a cherubim. I don't know, do I judge all four faces? Well, how do I do that? This may specifically, where Paul says we will judge angels, may refer to the fallen angels in the abyss. And that we will be called to be part of the judgment that is meted out to that demonic angelic host. What makes you say that? Jude verse 6, Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And apparently, we are judges in that judgment. But I don't think that the, the point is who or how or when. I think the better question in the judgment of angels is why? Why would you, why would I be sufficient to judge an angel? What qualifies me to be a judge of angels? And the only thing I can figure is that I have received grace and truth. I understand grace. Other angels are not as qualified as you to judge their fellow angels. Why? Because they don't get grace. They don't understand what that's about. The Bible tells us clearly they are looking at us and they are looking into these things and they are trying to understand this whole concept of grace. And we're told that God's entire work of salvation on earth in humanity is also for the training and teaching and understanding of the principalities and the angels. Because they don't get it. God is revealing His grace in His work with us to His glory. And us as recipients of that grace, wow, we have the mind of Christ, we have the Spirit of the living God. And so I think, tell you what, if I have someone judging me, I want them to be someone who understands grace. And add that in as we determine to lovingly and compassionately judge each other in our fellowship. We do it by the grace that we ourselves have received. We do it out of love. We do it out of compassion. We never do it out of spite or malice. That's the leaven that Paul said, I have no use for that either. So rather than dragging each other into secular courthouses, we ought to be learning how to judge with grace and truth in the church house better than the courthouse. Jesus said very clearly, let's just go over this, if your brother sins, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. That's love. That's grace. Go to a brother or sister. If you're aware of a sin, sit down with him and say, look, I know this is going on. And it's not okay. And you know it's not okay. Let's pray together. Repent of this. Let, I'll help you. Turn around and stop this behavior. But Jesus says, if he does not listen to you, then you take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And that's Hebrew law. you got to have witnesses. If there are not witnesses, you don't hold this thing against somebody. And by the way, that needs to be importantly understood. If you go to someone to show them their sin and they reject you, you don't just go tell someone else about their sin and take them. You make sure that the other person you take is a witness of the sin too. 
that they are aware of the sin. And you bring with you a witness to this person. Now one or two people. And now you sit down and go, look, we talked about this. He knows about this as well. We love you too much to continue to let this go on. And then, Jesus says, after that, going to them, taking a witness. Then if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then you do what Paul's calling for with this man. You let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. At that point, you cut them off. Because they are in refusal to repent and they are in rebellion. What does it mean to take it to the church? You know, I'm not a fan of bringing someone before the entire church body and I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. But I think you bring it before leadership. I think you involve pastors or shepherds. Let me just say to you that if you come to me and say, Rick, there's a sin issue with so-and-so in the church, the very first thing I will ask you is, have you talked to them about it? And if you say yes, the second thing I'll ask you is, did you take witnesses and go personally and privately to them to deal with it? And if you say yes to that and they are still in rebellion, then I will get involved. Not because I'm so righteous. But that's where you bring leadership or you bring a shepherd or you bring some of the elders in once you've already tried to establish these other things. I I know I'm going over things that many of you already know. But we need to make sure this is established. This is baseline mentality in the household of God. Now you might say, well, what if I can't get no satisfaction? What if I bring it to the church, but I don't get the result that I wanted? And if I take him to court, at least I'd have some money. You know, at least I'd get some ruling in my favor. Favor. What if I'm not satisfied? Listen to what Paul says, latter half of verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your own brethren. I mean, this is almost a ludicrous question, but it's in keeping with the daft message of the Gospel. And the question Paul asks is, why not be wronged? (laughs) The authenticity of the Apostle is just remarkable to me. Why not take the hit? But that's not fair. I'm going to say it was fair. I said, why, why not be wronged? I call this the downside of forgiveness. Man, we are called, ladies, we are called to take the downside with each other. Take the stripes, even in your innocence. Why would I do that? Because Jesus did. And we are never more Christ-like then when we take someone else's punishment for something we did not do. And so if you bring a lawsuit situation, a, a, a complaint to the church, but it doesn't turn out the way you want, and you're innocent, and the other person's guilty, and you're sitting there going, but I'm not the one... But he, and, and, so, why not be defrauded? Why not take the hit? And I guess if we're being really honest, none of us are all that innocent after all, right? except by the blood of Christ. Now, the rest of the chapter we're going to deal with on Sunday. But I promised you some definitions, so let me give them to you quickly and we'll be done for tonight. Verse 9, Paul says, In this context, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now stop there for a moment, some definitions. Fornicators. For you note takers, the word fornicators is pornos, where we get pornea. It's the same word, it's just the way the word is used, and and a pornos was a male prostitute. But, as I said, culturally speaking, it became used for any sexual promiscuity or illicit behavior outside of marriage. So, a couple of 20-somethings sleeping together are pornos, according to Scripture. The second word here is idolaters. In the Greek, it's idololatress, which is where we get our word, idolater. And it literally means a worshiper of idols or false gods. The reason why it's in the list is because sexual immorality was connected directly to idol worship. It was part of the deal. The temple prostitutes there in Corinth, the sexual immorality that was rampant was religious in its basis. So idolaters. Third word, adulterers. This word is moikos. And moikos literally means unfaithful to a marriage. And it's another common definition in the Greco-Roman world. That an adulterer was someone who was not faithful to their marriage. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the bed undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will Judge. What about grace, Rick? We'll get to grace. But we also have to get to truth. And we have to deal with what is truth and understand what is truth. Effeminate. This is remarkable. Effeminate. What is that? In the Greek, malakos. And it means delicate, soft, and literally a male acting like a female. Wow. With the drive for transgender rights in our culture, the Word of God is stunningly relevant. Effeminate are on the list. Of course, God's Word always speaks light into the heart of darkness. The next word is homosexuals. I told you before, but let's be clear. It is a separate word. The word there for homosexual is not pornea where we see sexual immorality. And there are those who point to the Scriptures and say it's vague, it's not specific about that, it's not calling out homosexuals, they're wrong. The word here is arsenocoitus. Two Greek words put together. Arseno means a man, coitus meaning sex, male sex. And what the word defined clearly in the culture and history supports this, it is a man who lies with another man as he would lie with a woman. It's homosexuality. And it's absolutely, specifically drawn out, written up in in Scripture, as much as pornea, sexual immorality, and all the rest. Now, in the list, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, are self-explanatory. I don't even need to give you the words because the words are the words. They mean what they mean. And sometimes when we see a list like that, people go, well, see, but but there there are these other sins on here too. What about them? Well, if... If that's not your issue, then why are you trying to smokescreen? You know, for the homosexual who says, yeah, but the coveters, they're on the list. Well, great. But so are you. 
<laughs> what does them being on the list have to do with anything? I don't get that. But I will add one more definition here. And it is the word swindlers at the end. And the word swindlers is literally harpacks. Harpacks in the Greek. And it means rapacious or ravenous. Ravenous. Jesus said in Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The point? Sin is never satiated. Sin is ravenous. Sin is a hungry wolf. It is never satisfied. Sin says, just one more drink, and this will be the last one. Just one last joint. One one final illicit affair. One more night, and then I promise, Lord, I'm not going to do this anymore. But sin doesn't think that way. We fool ourselves when we do. Lord, I'll never do it again. And this time, I mean it. <laughs> James 1.14 says, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, James writes. It's pretty clear what Paul is talking about on this list. And he says absolutely, unequivocally, those who live these lifestyles on this list will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I remind you one more time, he is talking to Christians. It's so serious to Paul that he looks at Corinth and says, you've got to clean house. You cannot allow this kind of behavior. You are not doing yourself or the immoral person any service by ignoring it. Deal with it because this is a kingdom issue. This is an eternity issue. In the last sermon that I preached, the Sunday right before I left for vacation, there were some harsh things. I know, I said them. And... And I think I even said something at the time about I'm, I'm going to be a little harsh because I get to leave for two weeks, so <laughs> I'll just throw it out there and let you deal with it, you know. And I actually did what I never do. I went back and listened to certain sections. One in particular, where I was talking about being weary. And I want to remind you of the context of me saying that and explain it to you, because I'm not burning out here, okay? I've been 25 years in ministry. I'm going to be here for a while. Okay, if I was going to burn out, it would have happened in my first year, and it almost did. So I know the ropes. I understand what what it means to pastor in this day and age and, and in a church fellowship. So please get this. I'm not tired of my job. I love doing what I get to do. And I am not tired of the people. And I'm not tired of the ministry itself. What was wearisome to me is that all of these sinful behaviors that we're talking about even tonight might be as recent as the night before on any given Wednesday or on any given Sunday, even in this fellowship. The sinful behaviors, lifestyles, and they come out of nowhere. And and I, I get it. I deal with it all the time. I really do. But sometimes it comes in waves. And over the last several months, there have been several things. And it's like, how, how can this be? 
among a people who love Jesus, love each other, and love the church. And so what I said at the time was I was just kind of weary of all of that going on. Not of you, because we all know that those who come on Wednesday night are pretty sinless. (laughs) But just of... Of the church even in general. There are times, and there's nothing anybody can do about this. Aren't aren't there times where you just get tired of hearing about pastors who fall to sexual sin? Every time I hear about that, I go, really? Another one? When I hear about, recently, the Methodist church voting in their first gay bishop, I say, really? Another one? And it is wearisome, and it should be for every single one of us. To the point where we just don't want to tolerate what is wrong in the eyes of God. And even if if that means it's in my own life, I need to learn how to be intolerant of sin in my life. And if we love Jesus, as I said, and if we truly have compassion for the immoral brother or sister, and if we love the church, we cannot ignore immorality among us. We just can't. We have to find a way to walk in the light together with the love of Jesus as our standard and the grace and forgiveness of God as the offer for everything going on in every single life in this fellowship and in the church. Paul is clear. He says that people living these lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God. What about grace, Rick? Well, let me tell you, grace is not licensed to wallow helplessly in sin. The grace of God is not so that we can just do whatever and He's going to forgive it anyway, so why try? No, grace is the power to stop sinning. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So that we don't have to do those things that before we kind of had to do because we didn't even have the Spirit. We didn't have grace. The immoral man, remember this, the immoral man and everything on this list in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, these are brothers and sisters that Paul is dealing with. And again, someone will bring up eternal security and can I lose my salvation? And that is not the point. This isn't a lesson in theology. This is a lesson in compassion. And so Paul writes, such were some of you. Past tense. And verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 is among my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. Because he lists this this horrible and obvious and very illicit group of lifestyles And then he says to the church at Corinth, and to you and to me, such were some of you. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were sexually immoral. Some of you were involved in illicit things. Some of you were effeminate. Some of you were covetous and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. Some of you were all of these things. Such were some of you, but not anymore. Not anymore. Why? Because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And our God is not casual regarding sexual or any other kind of sin, nor nor is He flippant about your salvation, your redemption, and mine. This is all eternal to God. 
What is a one-night stand to a human being has eternal implications where God is concerned. And so, if you've been redeemed, starting right now, live that way. If you've been washed, don't jump in the mud. If you've been sanctified, if you've been justified, live for the kingdom in Jesus' name. And you start right now. By the grace of God, in repentance, and your sanctification will continue from here. Holy Father, we're just really at the tip of the iceberg here. I know what we're going to talk about on Sunday, and everybody can read the rest of the chapter and find out. And Lord, I know that You're about to unveil before us Your standards regarding marriage and divorce and all that goes on with that. Father, I pray for Your grace that as we receive Your truth, we will know it comes from a God who loves and forgives and redeems and restores. And Lord, I recognize and declare tonight what I know is in the heart of Paul and in your spirit that none of this is about leaving people lost in judgment. But it is discipline for salvation and for restoration. And so Lord, restore us. Restore us. Restore this fellowship. I pray that there will not be a single person tonight, Sunday, next week, or the following as we talk about these things. No one who walks out in guilt or offense but rather determined to repent and be washed. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.